0: Joining me today on the podcast is Dr Penny Stewart, Director of Intensive Care at Alice Springs Base Hospital. Penny has a unique perspective on the delivery of ICU care in a regional centre and it's my great pleasure to welcome her to the podcast today. Thanks very much, Penny, for, uh, for joining us on the podcast. Um, you've been out in Alice Springs for quite some time now?
1: Yeah. in Sydney and half-time in Alice Springs for about three years and now spend full-time for three years, so six years in all.
0: So tell me how you came to be um, working out in uh, a fairly unusual place.
1: Uh, Well, at the end of my ICU training, uh, my last three months was doing a medical registrar job in Alice Springs Hospital back in 2000. And I realised that there was a huge difference the level of care that was being given in um, uh, hospitals, any of the hospitals that I'd worked at in in Sydney, um, and in in Alice Springs Hospital, I also realised how how reversible the disease that we were treating in Alice Springs Hospital with the Aboriginal people were, but how much that um, they weren't getting the right treatment and so therefore they were dying anyway. And so from my point of view there was a, a big discrepancy of what you could do um, to the resources and and I couldn't I couldn't let it go. And so I decided that once I'd got a bit of experience in in Sydney and knew how to now how to be an intensivist and how to be a consultant that I would try and lend a little bit of um, that experience to Alice Springs.
0: Can you can you elaborate a little bit? What what sort of things did you notice were what what were the key things that were missing that that you wanted to try and contribute? Well,
1: at the time I was in Alice Springs in 2000, the intensive care was uh, run by who um, were trying hard, but um, all of them were trained overseas, most in the subcontinent, and and most had had no experience with the kind of standard of intensive care that um, Australia and New Zealand um, have. And so we're, we're struggling. And so... Um, and sixty or seventy percent of the patients were were Aboriginal, um, and and while the nursing staff were ex- extraordinarily good at um, putting forward protocols and advocating for the the patients, what they were finding was that um, when they were ringing for help, uh, there um, there was a real hesitancy because there wasn't the, the knowledge. Um, that allowed them, um, the anaesthetists to feel confident in, in treating these people. Yeah. And one of the problems when you you have a group of people that are not supported um, and that don't have the knowledge base, uh, instead of getting better, they actually become more dysfunctional. They become they they, they start um, as soon as there's a sick patient, they they tend to move away, which is which is human nature. Um, and uh, when I looked at the, uh, the ANZIC statistics, I actually realised that there was a, uh, a four times greater mortality rate in Alice Springs than you would expect. And yet 40% of the ventilated patients were being, um, were being transferred to Adelaide, uh, which, is, which translates that there was, a, there was an even higher mortality rate. So I realised mm. that there was a real crisis there.
0: So you're the, you're the first intensivist who's practised in Old Springs.
1: Before me, there was Daryl Cash. Um, so he worked in, um, but he had he worked very much as a sole practitioner and must have done an extraordinary job. Uh, but he had left a few years be, before I came as a medical registrar. So it, it really it left a, a real hole. Um, the and when when I finally got the job um, in Alice Springs, uh, there, there had been uh, what had happened was that the anaesthetists had all finally burnt out and walked, and there was no anaesthetist in Alice Springs Hospital, um, and they had twenty six different locum intensities coming up um, all on a weekly basis, and so it was a very chaotic. Um, service with, with no sort of long-term planning.
0: It sounds like an almost cataclysmic uh, time for the hospital.
1: Yeah, uh, I think so. I mean, in, in lots of ways, as I said, the, the nursing staff in Alice Springs Hospital have always been incredibly strong, and um, and they, they, to their credit, took the opportunity to, to learn everything off all the locums that came in. Mm. However and so for a year in some ways they they got exposed to a whole lot of new ideas and, and looked at a whole lot of new ideas and, and thought of it as a learning experience but realized that um, that they couldn't continue on that that in that way I mean it was it was it was very much like a war zone in, in some ways yeah um, coming in, in and out all the time um, different kind of ways you're going to operate all the time and while you learn a lot uh, it's, no, it's not a sustainable um, uh, program hmm.
0: It sounds like you, you'd sort of made up your mind to, to go back and do something about that when you returned to Sydney, what were the sort of things that you wanted to get out of your training in Sydney to, to equip you to do uh, what you're doing out there now
1: More just confidence. Uh, The I think that the there is a there is a real step between becoming uh, being a a senior registrar to being a consultant, Uh, and the steps about taking on responsibility and being confident to being an advocate for the for for a patient. and, I mean, that sounds ridiculous that you, you need to learn that a little bit as a consultant, but I think you do. Uh, I think you actually have to learn how you act and how you interrelate when things are not are not going... <laughs> Um, your way as a registrar when you're not going your way you find a mentor or a a boss that's going to advocate for you you sort of have to work out how you do it yourself Um, and I knew that being in Alice Springs I'd be in a service that is in with poor resources and a patient population that um, is has difficulty in advocating for to get sued a large amount to to bring around changes because um, there's a a legal sort of um, case against... You know, a process, and so you really have to be confident in, in um, your ability to negotiate and, um, and advocate properly, and, and that's really what I was gaining in my years in, in Sydney. And the other thing is, I worked as a, a paediatric intensive uh, an anesthetist, and so just got a little bit more confident with yep. looking after kids, you know, And I, when I wasn't going to have as much help.
0: There's a very different set of issues for regional intensive cares, isn't there, compared with their um, metropolitan cousins? What were the sort of things that you noticed when you went out there that that stood out as being very different?
1: Look, I think um, I, I think that what you see is the opportunities that are different, um, and the the thing about rural areas is that the way you act and what the problems are it, it's very related to the lo- local population that you serve for me that's aboriginal health um and the environment that you you're working in and uh, and so you have to be adaptable to to both of those things, um, and you have to learn with your community. And, um, and the good thing is that it, having a, being in a rural area actually allows you to be much more reflective in your practice because you can you actually see the things that you put in place actually working or not working. Um, so it really completes that loop. The the Thing I think I found, I've, and that's the real opportunity, to actually understand how, you know, when even looking after the most um, sick people, you can actually affect um, public health changes um, by. By actually understanding the, the disease processes that have, have left them into that into those into those issues, um, and I think that's probably even more so in Aboriginal health than any other um, form of health in Australia. But I think you know the same is true. Uh, um, a lot of rural practitioners. Now, the, the I suppose the the biggest difficulty from being a rural and I think this is where the tertiary hospitals need to um, to actually improve the relationship, is that most rural hospitals do not have specialist services um, apart from intensive care and emergency medicine. And so they're really run by general surgeons and general physicians. And so if you actually need specialty services, you're actually reliant on a relationship with the tertiary hospital. Um, Yet, the tertiary hospitals do not see that as part of their responsibility, and I think that one of the things that we could do in the intensive care world is actually promote better health throughout the whole of Australia by looking after the general medicine and general surgery better in the areas that the people are sick. Reducing the workload that has to go down to the tertiary hospitals, but when people do have to go down for specialist services, actually making that transition um, a better one, and um, you know, and that's something I think that you see very clearly in rural areas.
0: Yeah, you, it sounds like you had a bit of a blank canvas to work with when you were there. When you first arrived, um, what were the keys that you put in place to to try and uh, improve the delivery of care?
1: Look, um, Todd, I don't know what you did, but I'm very pragmatic, and so what I I did was I looked at the college guidelines as to what you need to be an accredited ICU, and I I went through the guidelines and just ticked them off and, and put everything in place. That um, needed for registrar um, training because I felt that the um, the way of progressing the unit forward, the way of getting it sustainable, was to get accreditation, to get re- trainees coming through, um, and um, and to have a teaching environment. Uh, it would keep me fresh, and it would. Um, and
0: it would allow us to attract staff and hopefully get consultants in the future. I know that in where I've been, at least, it's been um, yeah. difficult to support um, non-intensivist uh, practitioners in the intensive care unit. I'm wondering how you've gone about doing that to support the other people who are around you and provide them with... With stimulation and support and education, those sorts of things. Do you have any comments on that?
1: Look, um, we're in a slightly different uh, environment than a lot of other rural Australia, and the uh, what what we've we've actually got a problem with um, all the specialty areas at the moment. Only one general physician is full-time. Um, oh, sorry, two general physicians are full-time. The rest are all just locums. Um, and we've only got one um, anaesthetist who's got his um, fellowship of, intensi- of, of anaesthetics in Australia and New Zealand. All the others that are overseas and are on provisional registration. So, and the emergency department... Um, is down to three emergency physicians. Uh, so they're struggling to just man their own emergency department. So in some ways that made it easy. Um, it meant that I could say, well, we just... What we we will do is build up the intensive care with intensive care specialists. and um, And we will... Help some of the other areas um, rather than the other way around.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that's that's the way I've done it. Now it's not always been easy. We've I've always we've always managed to have basically two full time equivalents employed. Um, although you know most people have only come for a year, but it's still been two full time equivalents. And then I developed a relationship uh, with uh, Royal Adelaide Hospitals to, um, for them to rotate some of their uh, intensive care consultants up, up to do weeks to relieve us a little bit. It has, it has been difficult from a point of view of the onerous on call. Um, however, gradually... But what we have done is um, we've, we're now training our We have got trainees through and we're getting our first trainee back as a consultant um, in the middle of this year and I'm hoping that um, beginning of next year we'll get a second one so I'll have three full-time equivalents. Um, so we're, we're getting there.
0: That must be very gratifying to have your former trainees return to... to... Oh,
1: absolutely. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I've actually even got some of them lining up, and that um, saying to me that one of them, one of my um, registrars who's still got two or three years of training, is wanting to do a PhD in Aboriginal health and um, and work in ICU at the same time. Uh, so we're we're actually getting we're actually getting some good research people coming back as well uh, that are planning. You know, uh, so we're actually getting people booking it up.
0: Which is great. You've been very active in in regional health, um, obviously with your vantage point from Alice Springs that it brings a lot of these issues into clear focus, but you've, you've also made some attempts to address this issue at college level, I was just wondering whether you could elaborate on that. Look, I think one of the things, and
1: I'm sure I think all of us can this in Royal Health is that intensive care has been incredibly, the intensive care has been exceedingly good at actually training people for tertiary based um, intensive care hospitals. But that's really been its focus, and, and there's been a, a wonderful progress as, of the specialty as a whole, but the, the, there's always problems with any progression, uh, there's also unintended consequences, and I think the unintended consequences of um, what's happened in intensive care is really felt in the rural and remote areas. One of the problems is that as um, intensive care has got stronger, uh, the ability, um, you know, acute medicine training for both anaesthetists and physicians is actually is actually less, and, and the reliance on intensive on intensivists is greater in most places where people are being trained. Um, and and the problem is that we still haven't addressed how to. Uh, attract people into rural and remote areas in intensive care. Uh, and so that's really where a lot of my my work with the college has been, is that um, there, there has to be... My feeling is, from the college point of view, is that they have to actually see staffing rural and remote um, areas with it as one of the challenges for the college. Uh, they have to be a little bit flexible about how it's going to be done in this transition period for about five years, but not too flexible to it actually um, promote a, a poorer standard in rural and remote areas because I don't think rural and remote areas can have a poorer standard because, in fact, be just as good, um, if, if not better, um, working in a rural and remote area as you do in a tertiary hospital. And um, and I think that the college and the board needs to actually not approach it as a problem but as an opportunity because I think if, if intensive care only looks to tertiary hospitals um, and cities to expand its influence, do is be treating more and more um, sick patients who are elderly with non-reversible disease. There's a whole gamut of people out in the rural and remote areas where they've got good reversible disease that actually giving intensive care um, services um, improves their mortality enormously. Um, we've, We've really proved that in Alice Springs. We've actually had the lowest SMR rate for the last five years nationally um, we, uh, we, and that's not because we're better than everyone else that's, it's, that would be a joke um, You know, we're, we're, a, we're, we're a reasonably good ICU but we're certainly no better than anyone but it's because we're treating reversible disease yeah. um, we're treating sepsis we're treating um, lack of medications we're treating accidents that get to us um, than people with um, lymphoma that are on their third bone marrow transplant or, and we're not treating 80-year-olds or 85-year-olds who are going through operations they should never have had, had in the first place. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, most people in the cities recognise that the challenge for intensive care is for us not to be keeping on treating people that don't have reversible disease but the problem is that if we want to expand the specialty you're not going to do that unless you actually improve your influence the rural and remote areas because if all you want to do is build more beds in the tertiary hospitals we will be treating more and more irreversible disease because you build beds people will come
0: (laughs) that's very true what what sort of things would you like to see implemented if you had your opportunity to to put these things into place what would you want to do to encourage people to come out to regional areas to practice
1: Look, I think um, I actually look at rural and remote areas and outer metropolitan hospitals in the same vein. Um, I think I think that one of the things is that. People have to see that working in rural and remote or out metropolitan hospitals is an important part of training um, because you have to be able to work in a place where resources are less. Um, and you actually have to understand places where the resources are less because if you're truly wanting to um, to work out who are the patients that you should be accepting for transfer, what advice you should be giving to, areas, you actually have to understand them. Yeah. You, you can't advise people when, when you have no concept of, of what's the conditions that they're having. And um, so I we also have to recognise that people do have families in this um, and often uh, people are in partnerships where both members are, uh, are working and they have kids. So we can't expect them all to go to the rural and remote areas, but they can work in metropolitan hospitals. So I think that we should make it mandatory that you um, do part of your training, at least in rural and remote areas or out of metropolitan hospitals. Yeah. Um, I also think that when you're first a consultant at a tertiary teaching hospital, that you should have a, um, a partial appointment at either a rural hospital or an alpha metropolitan hospital for which... Um, your hospital is responsible for. So you actually... So that you do um, one week four times a year in that hospital and you actually understand the stresses and the capabilities of the place. Um, so that when you're giving advice over the phone, you can do so in a, in a knowledgeable way. Um, and, you know and that will actually help a lot of the um, problems with staffing in rural and remote and out of metropolitan hospitals because what we what you know what we need is three full-time equivalents in a lot of the rural areas plus we need people to fill in a few of the extra gaps um, and make sh- and give us the buffer so that when one person leaves or goes on annual holiday or has long service leave, we actually don't go down to a one and two mm-hmm. roster. The the chances of us employing four full time equivalents is is at the moment pretty remote. Um, so we actually we, we need that sort of buffer that comes from the city. Yeah. It a- it actually also makes sense from the city point of view. It creates more jobs there. Um, you know, it uses um, that locum money, which is really quite wasted money, um, um, to positions where there's a real responsibility and a connection. Um, and you know, where where most people want to work is a tertiary teaching hospital. We have to recognise that, but we also have to recognise that they can't work there without an, under, an, an understanding and a feeling of responsibility for the people that um, their specialty services serve
0: we've we've heard on a number of occasions that there is a reduced carrying capacity for consultants in the, the tertiary areas. I'm, I'm not so sure that is true, but that's, that's certainly something we hear quoted a bit and that the future of the job uh, market for intensivists is in regional areas. What would you say to, to people who are going through their training now about the virtues and maybe some of the hardships associated with, um, with working in a regional area?
1: We'll only see the virtues rather than the <laughs> hardships. I think uh, people like you and I hopefully will smooth out a lot of the hardships for for the people coming through. Um, uh, I mean, the biggest hardship for everybody is if if you don't have enough staff, it's hard. Um, you know as soon as you have enough people employed to do a job you will get innovative changes you'll get a, a good interactive um, department and you'll have people enjoying it and um, getting involved in both teaching research and all of those kind of things I think um, the the opportunities are enormous um, I really think um, one of my one of my Good friends wrote a book on setting up in an intensive care in Africa, and um, which might seem ridiculous in um, Zambia, but he, he said that um, you know if you set up an area of control where medicine, you know, you teach good medicine and real understanding of processes and what, why things are going wrong. You have it in a controlled environment. You can influence so much of the the rest of the medicine around you, and I think that's a lot what we can give to um, regional Australia as well. Um, and uh, you know, we are very you know we're trained to be good at pattern recognition and understanding physiology and understanding um, the influences of, of things. And I think uh, there's real opportunities both in um, in education, in research, and in modifying the 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 way hospitals run um, by having good intensive cares in um, rural and remote areas, and it's incredibly interesting.
0: Penny, thank you very much for your time today. It's been fascinating to to talk to you about some of your experiences out there. Um, And, uh, yeah, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks, Todd.
0: More podcasts like this one can be found at our website, www.crit-iq.com.au.